0: This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we complete our conversation on Old Gods, New Enigmas by Mike Davis. In this part, we look at the last three chapters. Marx's lost theory, the politics of nationalism in 1848, the coming desert, Kropotkin, Mars, and the pulse of Asia, and who will build the ark?
1: Do you want to take the lead on the nationalism one, Lexi? I didn't really, I didn't really highlight anything from there.
2: Sure, that one's probably the most like obtuse. Maybe like the hardest to kind of figure out what he's getting at. Let's see. I think probably the best way to handle it. Honestly, when I was reading it the first time over, I wasn't really sure what the fuck the point of it was.
3: Nationalism is a form of class consciousness. that I, I,
2: that's, I thought that was the point of it. I think. Well, it's, it's something a little more specific, is that the proletariat can take a leading role in a national defense struggle. And that is like a way of dealing with the ambiguity of the nation through, I mean, that's just essentially how Marx envisioned the proletariat resting, you know, power away from the bourgeoisie and winning the battle of democracy in like a national context is I guess one way that you could phrase this. Does that sound right?
3: I mean, Yeah, but he also talks about, like, with the 18th the Civil War in France, how, like, I mean, no, yeah, 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, where, basically, the reason why the whole republic just fell apart on itself, and just let this would-be, this pathetic would-be emperor just, like, slide into power, is, is simply because, like, the Republicans represented no the the Republicans represented no one in, but like a few petty bourgeois in the city, and the the republic and uh the restoration of Napoleon's you know regime, the restoration of the mon restoration of the sort of line that Napoleon built represented for the peasants a political program onto itself in which their their needs are met directly by, like, you know, aristocracy that's like, I mean, not aristocracy, monarchy that's not really concerned with modernizing in an industrial sense, but giving back to the peasantry, whereas the Republicans never really addressed to the need, needs of the peasants. So, the, re- the peasantry ended up Going towards a hard line form of nationalism because of that, it's basically like competing forms of nationalism facing off against each other, working through class interests, and generally, what I got out of the essay was that nationalism is sort of a reflection of class consciousness to various degrees
1: right, well, and you can see how you know from like Marx is basically trying to suss out like the rational
2: interest that people had, like in these nationalist projects. Um, I found the quote that I was looking for. Marx did not underestimate nationalism per se. The major political lesson of the French writings, uh, to which he's referring to the civil war in France and class struggles in France is seldom recalled without the slightest ambiguity. Marx argued against the post-Marxist stereotype that martial nationalism was an essential fuel for social revolution, as well as a precondition for socialist leadership of the peasantry and the lower middle classes. He and Engels had already made this argument in the case of Germany. And it was resumed in the class struggles in France, where he contrasted 1848 to 1792, regretting the absence of foreign interventions and a national enemy to face. Um, I'm going to skip over the Marx quote. Marx, of course, was not advocating proletarian nationalism per se, but rather a socialist assumption of leadership in national defense, with the goal of accelerating revolutionary change both internally and in neighboring countries. This was not a one-off position. For similar reasons, Marx and Engels urged German comrades in 1870 to give support to the Prussian-led alliance against Napoleon III, although as long as it only, although only as long as it remained a war of national self-defense. That's the main thrust of this article. I'm almost, like, not sure what to do with that, except for the last five pages, I think, maybe maybe points to a way that we're supposed to read the rest of this. Or is it the last seven pages? You know what I'm talking about? The calculating interest section?
1: Yeah, like, different, different classes, like, see themselves reflected in, in their differing ideas of what the nation is. And... You know, he talks about how the, um, the Brumaire is like a a balance sheet of the way that like these different classes like strategically acted within, you know, that particular historical moment. I guess the kind of the kind of like summary thing towards the end was basically um, Marx, of course, was not advocating proletarian nationalism per se, but rather socialist assumption of leadership and national defense with the goal of accelerating revolutionary change, both internally and in neighboring countries. This is not a one off position. For similar reasons, Marx and Engels urged German comrades in 1870 to support the Prussian led alliance against Napoleon III, uh, although only, only as long as it remained a war of national self defense. Marx believed that, quote, the, Fr- the French need a thrashing. Um, and a German victory, he argued to Engels, would trans- transfer the center of gravity of the workers' movement in Western Europe from France to Germany. Um, and that would ultimately mean, like, the predominance of their theory over Proudhon's. And that was eventually kind of used later to justify voting for war credits. I I, mean, I I could definitely see like the the move in terms of in the in terms of like 1870. It, it kind of reminds me how I feel right now about Iran, where I kind of want to I kind of want to see us go to war with Iran so that we would lose badly, and and might actually kind of like break American imperialism at least in its current form.
2: I mean, this is an accelerationist theory. So <laughs> well, I want. Accelerationist, miserationist, maybe.
3: Because I don't know.
2: This seems it seems explicitly like trying to push the tendencies that are existing towards the brink. You know, like.
1: Well, they they want there to be a crisis so that like the proletarian forces can like assume power.
2: Yeah, I guess that's the main difference from accelerationism is the proletarian uh, actor. What I what I was getting at about the calculating interest section, I don't know if I don't want to cut this. Sh- I don't want to cut this like conversation short. I kind of feel like this feeds back into the general thing. Is that he um he has a really interesting read about like suffrage, republicanism, um, but most importantly, this idea of class-based interests. Now, dedicated listeners will know that I think this like a scientific read. You know, notice the lack of quotes around scientific. Of class interest is really important for reconstructing, like, you know, something along the lines of, like, I mean, it sounds like a joke, but like, you know, scientific socialist program, right? Like, that you would actually kind of distill from, you know, like, so really, like, economic profile, like, what the best institutions, like, would do, like, how how to embolden people. That are proles. I'm not saying that like you, you draft this purely in a utopian sense, but like Marxists will be using some criteria like this in their critique of whatever institutions are to come. You know, whether they do it explicitly or not, um, whatever. I think it's good to think these things through. Mike Davis is definitely doing that. What I think is like important about this is that he kind of highlights something I never noticed in Marx from his political writings, I think in the 18th premiere, is that Marx sees the importance of leveraging the, quote, secondary forms of exploitation. I was surprised to see him call it exploitation uh, with regards to debt and with regards to just essentially other relations of production, you know, like other, other parts of capitalism. I was surprised to see him refer to these things as exploitation
1: Right. Um, right. Well, their they're exploitation in kind of the classical colloquial sense, not in like the technical sense that Marx uses in capital.
2: Well, right. But so Marx has an expanded idea of exploitation, at, which we know from historical materialism, of course. But like that could still be about production only. And there are some distributive mechanisms that are described as the exploitation. Mm-hmm. It gives one insight into Marx's greater understanding of exploitation that i thought was maybe a sort of imposition from other theory because like for instance neoclassical economists right they think exploitation is essentially excuse me essentially distributional like a worker that gets paid too much is exploiting you know what i mean mm-hmm. which is you know sounds absurd to a Marxist, but like you know there's a certain way of looking at rent seeking which carries you know the idea of ex- exploitation on it. <clears throat> anyway, I think this is interesting just by itself, without the without trying to derive class interests from it. But like, once you take on that analysis, then you add the extra layer of okay, we're looking at class interests that come out of you know taking these secondary forms of exploitation seriously, and then you tie that into the chapter's emphasis on nationalism and national defense right mike davis is talking about the sort of scientific logic behind like a proletarian led political coalition of some kind it's not always explicitly stated what he's trying to do i find most of the essays in this book are essays you know that they're not like like a a treatise or something that gets down to first principles for the most part. Even, even the first essay is written in theses, like the one that we covered last time. But even then, you know, it's it was still a bit, it's essayistic in tone, you know, it's like kind of expounding on a, on a concept. It's not necessarily systematic, even though there are there is myriad evidence of systematic interrogation, like underneath the text.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess um I could quote at length kinda he's he's working for, from someone named Banner I forget what her first name is. Yeah, I think so. She has this interpretation of Marx and he quotes at length, um, the translation of class interests based upon one's position as a landowner, shopkeeper, worker, or capitalist into subjective political dispositions and collective political action depends on a political process in which institutions such as political parties, ideologies and like republican play, Republicanism play a key role. These institutions and ideologies are not independent of material conditions and class forces, nor are they capable of simply creating interests out of discourses, unconstrained by material realities. Structural positions within production define a constellation of interests that can serve as a potential basis for collective action. Such action depends on the building of political organizations and the creation of identities that are not simple reflections of objective positions in a political arena, with rules that constitute opportunities and constraints within which multiple possible enemies uh, and with multiple possible enemies and allies. This means that class factors alone are never fully determine just how much interest will be defined in the political programs and coalitions or how politically salient class-based class based interests will become. Yeah. the so recognition of the institutional and cultural determines of political behavior need not lead to an assertion of the autonomy of politics or to an abandonment of class analysis. One can reject a class reductionist understanding of politics, yet still acknowledge the centrality of class relations in shaping political behavior.
2: Yeah. Uh, and you know how I just said that he never like laid it out like a very explicitly in form of like feces in these essays. Well, guess what? I found the part where he lays it out be- explicitly in form of theses. So <laughs> um, translated into theoretical propositions, this is 163. Marx makes important claims in the French writings that hardly jibe with the post-Marxist stereotypes of class versus nation or the invariable causal primacy of the relations of production. The revolutions, so point one, the revolutions developed simultaneously in the triadic spaces of the nation, the world market, and European state system. Marx was particularly interested in the interconnections between these spaces. Um, Two, in the manifesto, Marx and Engels wrote that, quote, working men have no country, but immediately added that the proletariat is, quote, itself national. And to the extent that it, must rise to be the leading class of the nation, must constitute itself as the nation in order to achieve political supremacy. Uh, Point three, initially the 1848 revolutions were an archipelago of exclusively urban uprisings. Marx stressed that the next step forward must be a democratic alliance with the peasantry uh, four, under certain conditions of stalemated and mature class struggle, the state apparatus can become a quote executive committee of itself capable of wielding power in its own kleptocratic interest. And then uh, six, the co- economic content of politics slash nationalism, except in periods of crisis or in the most advanced nations, usually derives from quote secondary forms of exploitation or clashes between different categories of property. Marx, in fact, would spend much of the 1850s trying to understand the autonomous politics of money and credit, which played such a large role in the events in France and elsewhere. So that's the element of Marx that you get from the French writings that scholars that focus on the early Marx, late Marx tend to really miss. This emphasis on money, credit, in politics. Those that focus on the late marks tend to be more production-centric, you know, thinking about productive workers. Those that focus on the early mark are a little more, Marx are a little more humanist, uh, maybe a little more like queasy about economic reductionism to the point where they sort of turn away from class analysis. This is an interesting point of view. What what do you, What's the cash value of this? Because hopefully we've quoted this enough and i don't know if we've chewed on it or restated it enough or we demonstrate that we know what the hell is going on here but um
1: well i think i think okay so he is talking marx is writing in a period where capitalism has not um completed the process of proletarianization by a long shot and so you know marx is basically trying to analyze how the proletariat could improve, like, seize power or, you know, improve its position politically uh, within this context, right? That isn't just um, the most, like, black and white proles versus capitalists set up, you know? And this could have some import in a situation where, um, you know, again, like, it, like if if it's in, like, his kind of planet of slum scenario and you have this, like, lumpenization of, like, the global proletariat or this thing that, or the diminishment of, like, the factory-based working class... You know, what kind of, you know, it, you could be in a situation where it's not met, like, I guess, like direct, like strike struggle or something like like what secondary political conflicts would come into play under which um, a genuine working that could spark like a genuine working class uprising again. Or like how how can the proletariat play its cards in um, a uniquely unfamiliar um, balance of class forces? in some future or contemporary scenario. Does that make sense? And he's trying to, I think he's trying to trace yeah, out like yeah. Marxist political methodology.
2: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And to kind of try to take this, take this topic that, you know, I don't know. I've even said that, you know, I've said that at least Marxists were bad at na- nationalism. Or, or Actually, you know what I've said is that Marxists paid more attention to nationalism than Marx. I think Mike Davis is making the case. This isn't true. Um, that there's some kind of neglect of texts in the corpus that give us not just that stuff about secondary class interests, not just this theory about nationalism. Then he goes into bonapartism. And, you know, it's often thought that a class interest theory of the state has a an exclusive, there's an exclusive dichotomy between that and this recognition that the state can be an independent power to a degree. And, you know, I think that's overstated. I think these tendencies can coexist. But if you want to make that kind of claim, you don't want to be too wishy-washy about it. Does a pretty good job of at least talking about how Marx develops this category of bonapartism and how Marxists have extended it. And he does a little bit of critical commentary on where he thinks it's extended well and, basically doesn't think trotsky's application of this to stalin works but yeah the bismarckian reich of uh, the, the kerensky regime by lenin uh, or uh, lenin's critique of the kerensky regime um trotsky's he calls it an autopsy of the of the government that preceded hitler
1: <laughs> yeah he, he talks a little bit about, about how uh, marx didn't ever didn't go into like a deep analysis of like the longevity or he didn't go to deep analysis of Bonapartism as it kind of stabilized and the way it, the kind of dynamism it had that allowed it to it last for as long as it had. Like he constantly seemed to think like, yeah, this is a house of cards going to fall apart any day now. And it probably went, seemed to go on way longer than Marx expected.
3: There's also another reason that it gives where basically like Marx essentially gets frustrated with like reading about sort of Napoleon bon- uh Nepo- what he refers to as Napoleonic socialism generally just just doesn't he literally just doesn't feel like writing about it like he just gets frustrated with it and like goes on to doing other shit is basically another reason that he gives
2: well yeah it's like blowing up his spot It's it's like someone I don't know It's like you've been repping something for years and then someone gets like a million followers on Instagram for doing it and does it with like, does it in like a shitty way that betrays a principle of yours. Yeah. It's like, I guess he got salty. And he, yeah. And he's like, any day now, this shit, this shit can't last. I guess that's what like liberals and post Marxists are getting at um, when they say that he underestimated nationalism. Mike Davis makes a good case. That's not true. Um, But you know, there's a, there's a prediction here. That fell flat. And I don't know. Mike Davis is pretty good about sort of examining the greater Marxist tradition about, you know, maybe why Marx didn't see that as a broader tendency. But again, that's something that's common throughout Marxist thought, right? Like he didn't think that capitalism was gonna last as long as it was as, as it was going to. And um to take up his analysis means to adjust for precisely that kind of thing
3: i mean there's a reason why marx wasn't particularly good at the stock market either
2: huh if only he had python yeah
1: <laughs> now the problem is if he had com- if he had computers he would just be in like he'd be in like internet arguments all day like he wouldn't be able to help himself
2: <laughs> there's no way he would have the self-control
1: yeah I mean, look, look, look at how much shit he got into with like telegraphs and oh the post office. You know what I mean? So much dicking around. Yeah. I mean, imagine if he had if he had a phone with him at all times. God. Okay. But
2: we wouldn't have volume one.
1: Oh no. No, we we have some killer tweet threads, but we would never. Yeah.
2: Yeah, just
3: one long tweet thread about like him saying the n word his chat right. right chats being leaked
1: oh uh, yeah he'd have been canceled a long time ago yeah
2: and there's a famous incident after the Paris commune where he said Ho's mad we abolish the state <laughs> yeah. it's, it, it kind of does say that though it's like the you know the cockettes of Paris you know they f- they fled to the scent of their masters basically boy the real women of Paris are out here that's kind of a real quote hose ho's mad we, we have the commune <laughs> god bless oh I'm, I'm taking a hit i, I don't know marx don't be a swerve it from a certain perspective like a, a kind of basic one this kind of flirting with you know nationalism like was irresponsible in the 20th century right like, and if we're super serious and scientific, shouldn't we just be like, man, fuck, fuck this nation because look, I did the, the ethical calculus and look how bad it is. So it doesn't matter if you live here and, you know, you've, your family's from here and you want to feel good about where you are. Like, fuck this place. Am I right? Like, I mean, I think hmm. it's
1: tough because, you know, like, um, I don't know, there's, there's, there's the question of imperialism, I guess, too, is like, like a major thing. Yeah. You know. Um. I definitely, it makes me want to read Benner and like her analysis of this more in depth. Um, Mm because he he draws a lot from that, and I think that that sounds like super interesting. Um, he draws a lot from Benner,
2: and he drew a lot from like another, like, what is this? Oh, I do not know how to pronounce this, but Sinisa Malasavich. Um, yeah, a lot from this author. So those are the two authors that really stuck out to me in the footnotes and in the main text.
3: I feel like de- I feel like developing it more and under- like coming to understand like you know the rational basis of nationalisms might be worthwhile. Just like sort of under like rather than just trying to understand them as civic religions or you know uh, whatever like. Bad sociological explanations, I feel like you know rooting it in class makes a bit more sense, and like when you look at like why why are people in russia why is almost everyone in Russia nostalgic about the Soviet Union? yeah, the numbers are actually incredibly incredibly high, like most people in Russia are nostalgic about this are nostalgic about the Soviet Union. And you see this in many Eastern Bloc nations. Not all of them, but many. And, you know, one can say, oh yeah, this is just a form of nationalism they missed when, you know, Russia was an empire. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, it's a form of nationalism, but it has like a rational basis to it. it you know, the Soviet Union was, was better off in general for most, most people who lived under it than Russia is currently now. Like, they only recently just recovered their birth rates after 20-something years of, you know, having incredibly low birth rates. You know, having high amounts of, like, heroin addiction, etc., etc. It's just like, you know, under this, They used to be a manufacturing economy under the Soviet Union, and now they're just solely dependent on oil, exporting oil. It... it It's just like that wave of privatization basically destroyed the lives of people in Russia. So of course they're going to be nostalgic for the Soviet Union because they missed the benefits of the So the few benefits that they had in the Soviet Union. That you know, even though it, it was authoritarian, it's like yeah, it was authoritarian, but you know, what what's the government now? it's authoritarian but i don't get a guaranteed job in that so
2: right there's uh, not like open you know bourgeois liberty like that really flourishes in russia
3: bringing democracy to russia just meant you know oh we're going to private pizza hut yeah pizza hut and we're Pizza Hut and we're privatizing all these like state owned industries and just letting them go to waste.
1: Although ironically like Pizza Hut is now kind of like the decrepit like Brezhnev era Soviet states. have you ever been in one recently. <laughs> like I, I haven't. Like it's it's depressing as fuck cuz like you go in there and you realize like you know people used to like go like let's hey, let's uh, let's put on our Sunday best and let's go sit down at Pizza Hut. You know like yeah, yeah, let's I know, get
2: the, let's get the stuff crust. Yeah. It's it just what a what a what a shitty culture we have. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no, um, i I will defend Pizza Hut, but I agree with the sentiment in general. Um crust fruit. For-
1: I mean, I mean, and you could see all you could see like almost like you how you end up with sort of like kind of like Maoist formulations about you could look at looking at the United States, right? Like there is definitely kind of like this you know, like you see, for instance, in how we're allegedly in, like, backdoor meetings, like, with the generals. Trump wanted to exit Afghanistan. And when they said no, he's like, okay, well, why aren't we, like, taking the lithium, right? So there is, like, there. I think there is kind of, like, within the more reactionary sections of American, like, people who are, like, literally, like, pro-imperialist, essentially, this task understanding that, like, to maintain, like, the lifestyle we have, we have to, like, plunder the rest of the world, basically. <laughs> and, like, you know, that's, like, that's how we... That's how we that's why we don't like apologize for our way of life or whatever. You know. Um, so you could you could like you could see it and but you can also see like how you could probably break it down to the way the different interest groups like project their own idea of what the nationality is of a particular country. I I think yeah, you could probably apply that it'd probably be interesting to look at that in like other nations like maybe Brazil or um uh you know, like yeah, like different Latin American countries or in Asia and so forth, like you know, Marx does like assert that classes only exist insofar as like they're contending against another class. Otherwise, they're competing amongst themselves, right? So, there, there needs to be some kind of situation of some kind of political, politically based class struggle um, for those forces to really become apparent. That's why I think it's kind of why this mode of analysis emerges in the context of political writing and writing about major political shakeups in Europe.
2: There's a little bit of a plea for like middle level concepts, you know, stuff that's not quite the microcosm, not quite the macrocosm. Mm. Uh, And kind of like dealing with these larger grains of analysis reminds me a bit of what our uh, guest uh, uh, Gene Allen uh, says about organizational materialism. looking at, like, a sort of, you know, mezzo analysis you know? It's not the smallest, it's not the biggest. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of, like, not not the finest grain concepts, but not the, you know, broadest things, either. That, um... I don't know. That's, that's the arena of strategy, you know?
1: And that's the arena of what he's looking at. Like, we talked about this last time, about how he's interested also in... in the underlying social networks and, like, ties that make up um, the classical workers' movement um, within and between the institutions that represented, You know, the, yeah, the sort of the social arrangements and the art, the, um, the built infrastructure that, like, facilitates the social intercourse that um, helps to fertilize the kind of class struggle that you saw like in kind of the classical era of of the like trade of union struggle in the west so um yeah he's he's kind of he's trying to shine a light on all these kind of areas that are there but maybe subtly overlooked you know and tr- coming at it from like a sociological perspective he, he is and this is definitely a book you know of the moment and it, that it wouldn't be complete without a look at uh the problem of uh, anthropogenic climate change, which is the subject of the last two chapters, um, chapter three is called uh, "The Coming Desert," Kropotkin Mars and the Pulse of Asia. And for this, again, he goes again back to the 19th century. He goes deep and talks about the earliest kind of debates about changing climates, and which actually goes back in a lot of ways to Kropotkin who um led a bunch of expeditions and ba- basically had was kind of developed early theories of like glacial movement and was obsessed with the idea of like desiccation and the idea that like growing desertification like shaped the course of the development of human civilizations
2: yeah and and just to be clear where the fourth chapter is a little bit more about anthropocentric climate change what pro- what Kropotkin is arguing is actually a kind of natural process that doesn't necessarily come from humanity, but the thing that he's stressing is it's causal impact on, on humanity and Kropotkin's ability to give nature its own internal dy- n- dynamic that has an impact on, well, you know, human explanation, you know, part trying to, look at a science of history that incorporates the environment um, in a way that's not weird and racist. Although it gets there, of course. Well, uh, he's, he's being
1: introduced he's, to Victorians. So not, not only Kropotkin's part, but just his, his ideas right. are kind of projected out into the ether of, you know, Victorian era, Western uh, intellectual culture. It mm-hmm. eventually does get mingled with uh, with some race science. Um, yeah
2: as does
3: historical it, materialism. but it, uh, it just gets ruined by race science essentially it gets ruined by like one guy like a popular writer and like a science fiction a, a science fiction writer who like uses it to theorize about like why there's canals on mars and how martian civilization died well
1: yeah it gets to aliens first
2: yeah it I, I, gets to aliens. percival law uh, who is covered in the Carl Sagan documentary series, Co- documentary series Cosmos? It's Carl Sagan uses uh, Percival Lowell as like you know one of these like people in history that has like a wild theory and doesn't really have the evidence for it, but is a sort of a popular grifter. Um, yeah,
3: and then there's another guy. Uh, Basic, uh, I'm forgetting the name that name, but basically. He really defends Kirk Popkin's theory heavily in pop in popular discourse and all that. He promotes it heavily. And he starts getting into some weirder, wacky shit later on, and he takes, like, the hardcore like geographic determinism to places where it didn't really, like, it shouldn't have gone, basically. It's like, you tried to use it to explain like what, uh, explain certain things about Koreans and other races.
1: <laughs> yeah, he has this. He has this theory about like like humidity and how it 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 like determines like human mental oh, yeah, acuity that's and the, industrial efficiency. Yeah, that's
3: and there's like another thing with electricity, like the mind, like human mind causing like weather patterns, like human like if you get.
1: And no, I think it's the other way around. I think it's weather patterns like affecting the human really? mind. I... Like he ran this series of, ex- yeah, the series of experiments like measuring. I think like barometric pressure, and then like pre- like testing like some kids' ability to do like certain oh, things, wait. and like comparing the comparing the fluctuations.
2: Oh, okay, yeah, okay, that makes more sense. To read a relevant passion, uh, excuse me. To read a rel- relevant passage, one ninety six at the bottom. Um, But Huntington soon put barometry aside, concluding that it was actually temperature, perhaps in collusion with humidity, that (laughs) determined human mental acuity and industrial efficiency. This, quote, meteorological Taylorism, as James Fleming calls it, was then subsumed by Huntington's passion for eugenics and racial engineering. While an ailing Kropotkin who had returned to Russia in 1917 to support the anarchist movement, was racing to finish his magisterial scientific testament, glacial and lacustrine periods. Huntington was publishing increasingly bizarre papers on the adaptability of white men to the Australian tropics and the impact of climate on human productivity in Korea. A few years later, he was struggling to understand the effect of overpopulation on Chinese character, decrying <laughs> the immigration of Puerto Ricans to New York and, <laughs> and pontificating in Harper's about temperature and the fates of nations.
1: God, effect, I love the, I love the bourgeois press,
2: like just the shit. That oh, always. yeah. Thanks, Harper's. Yeah, real yeah. woke. In effect, Huntington, uh, like Retzel, Semple and many others was aggrandizing the climactic race theories of Herodotus and Montesquieu the first convinced that Greece was man's perfect habitat, the other France, into an all-encompassing meteorological anthropology. I liked in particular that he connected this to Montesquieu, a favorite of the classical Republican tradition, and then, of course, Herodotus, the ancient Greek, uh, um, basically proto-historian, writing the book, Historias, which means inquiry, is where we get the word history from. Um, This is a very old kind of, you might say it's sort of proto-racial in Herodotus and kind of getting there with Montesquieu. But it's kind of easy to see where that sort of thinking goes in a contemporary context, especially by the time you start to develop Darwinian theory.
3: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And also the guy... Basically, like even the people who are kind of like supportive around him are like, yeah, you know, he he's 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 got some pretty interesting ideas, but he seems to have his ideas mold, mold themselves like the evidence just mold around his ideas rather than the other way around, and he generally ignores information that just gets in the way of his speculative ideas, and. Basically, he ended up like leaving Yale because of the, because of the criticism that he got. He's, he just got frustrated and he laughed. So, yeah. And the idea of climate change was actually tainted by like the connection that uh, that like his theor- his theories had to essentially like not. The Nazis, where the Nazis, like, you know, when talking about living space, they were like, yeah, basically there's huge portions, there's like, Russia's gonna become like a big desert because the Slavs are too stupid to actually know what to do with the land, and, you know, wait, no, I, I don't think it was, it was like... They're they're stupid because of the environment or something like it was basically like it fit into the justifications for living space, and that sort of thing. The well, Nazi, yeah, there
1: was there was speculative research that that he, yeah like like human agriculture like occupying certain lands changed the climate basically. Um, and then right.
2: the, the Aryans agric- needed to come in to prevent the desiccation of the Fertile Crescent, right? Or, or the the territories they're occupying. I'm not sure exactly where.
1: Uh, but yeah, I also kind of like how um, the kind of like there is kind of like this early catastrophism that was probably premature, both in terms of like desiccation, but also when they tied into Mars and the claim that Mars is basically a future Earth or the track that Earth is headed on and ha- and it happened to them faster. And so there was like this obsession with proving that there were like canals on on the face of Mars um, and, and, but it's interesting how it, it kind of like feeds into like this broader, like this, this, there was definitely like this hunger for like civilizational meta narratives like in this period, it seems like, um, and you can see it also like that the same impulse in like Oswald Spangler to like find like these like cycles, um, that like determine like the, the trajectory of civil, I think that probably has something to do with modernity and things kind of becoming like unmoored from like the kind of more stable modes of production um, associated with like, you know, the tributary mode, like completely being like felled away. And so people are looking for like some kind of almost certainty in ter- in terms of understanding what's going to happen. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Um. But yeah. And so I, th- I think I think it goes into this just as a way to look at the older discourse of of climate science and how it, and but I because th- i think that in, in addition to this the other thing that served to discredit climate change to a certain extent was also i think i think it, i feel like in the mid-20th century there were theories that there was going to be another ice age due to some like set of chemicals that was being pumped in the air that never came true either um because i've i've heard people like talk about that if you like mention climate change then they're like well they said it was going to be an ice age before you know um but then at the end of the chapter, he he basically goes, um, since the late 19th century, however, the progressive warming of interior Asia has produced a net drying, which the researchers warn may be a prelude to the future northward expansion of the deserts. Meanwhile, other climate scientists have expressed concerns that partic- pre- uh, precipitation regimes in Western Asia may be radically changing as well. A research group based at Columbia University's uh Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory which has been studying contemporary and historical mega droughts recently published a paper warning that the disastrous 2007 to 2010 drought in Syria the most severe in the instrumental record and a principal catalyst to social unrest was likely a part of a quote long-term drying trend associated with rising greenhouse emissions this uncomfortably accords with an earlier study which predicted that the entire climatological Fertile Crescent from the Jordan Valley to the Zagros foothills may disappear by the end of the century. Ancient rain-fed, quote, ancient rain agriculture enabled the civilizations to thrive in the Fertile Crescent region, but this blessing is soon to disappear due to human-induced climate change. The Anthropocene, it seems, may vindicate Kropotkin after all. That's how he ends the chapter.
2: Yeah. Which kind of ties things together, but wasn't Kropotkin mainly talking about kind of natural dynamics that aren't necessarily caused by humans. And he, there was some ambiguity for him for certain.
1: Um, yeah, well, and, and like he, he, yeah, he said there was kind of like a general trend and he would, he debated, debated with people who were claimed that like what was going on was cyclical. And, but I think what he, one major thing he was pushing is that there are, there are long, like long run, he was, he was part of that wave of people who were, talking about how there's like larger long run t- trends of nature and nature isn't like a stable equilibrium.
2: Yeah. I actually wanted to read some quotes towards that end because he says mm-hmm. some really interesting things that like kind of just helped me organize thought around this. This is really cool. Um, <laughs> the irony of Victorian science. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to start on page 179 and um, then, then there's, there's a little bit on like marks and angles on page 184 and 185 that's directly related. So I'm just gonna skip around. Um, So the irony of Victorian science, however, was that while human influence on climate, whether as a result of land clearance or industrial pollution was widely acknowledged and sometimes envisioned as an approaching doomsday for the big cities, few if any major thinkers discerned a pattern of natural climate variability in ancient or modern history. The Laelian worldview canonized by Darwin and the Origin of Species supplanted biblical catastrophism with a vision of slow geological and environmental evolution through deep time. Despite the discovery of the Ice Ages by the Swiss geologist Louis Agassiz in the late 1830s, the contemporary scientific bias was against environmental bias. Perturbations, whether periodic or progressive, on historical time scales. Climate change, like evolution, was measured in eons, not centuries. Um, And let's see. Um, So then he skips over to talking about angles, referring to deforestation of the Mediterranean and dialectics of nature warning that after every human victory, nature takes its revenge. Each victory, it is true in the first place, brings about the re- results we expected, but in the second and third places, it has quite different unforeseen effects, which only too often cancel the first. And that was an Engels quote. But if nature has teeth with which to bite back against human conquest, Angles saw no evidence of natural forces acting as independent agents of change within the span of historical time. He emphasized um, culture is Promethean while nature is at most reactive. And then um, certainly they believed that nature had a history, but it was enacted on long evolutionary or geological timescales. Like most scientifically literate people in mid-Victorian England, they adopted Sir Charles Lyell's uniformitarian view of earth history, upon which Darwin had built his theory of natural selection. Even while they satirized the reflection of English liberal ideology in the concept of geological gradualism. So, I think that's a really interesting kind of situation where Davis is looking at the broader tendencies in scientific thought and even, you know, socialist thought. Considering Kropotkin is an anarchist, um, that where that using principles set down by Marx and Engels, you might say. You know, if you're going to do dialectical materialism, right? Um, this seems like a dialectical advance, even on angles, right? If we are, if this description is to be believed, and, and I, I kind of, I, I can kind of see this with angles. I don't know about Marx, um, that, you know, nature is more reactive and it's not as Promethean as, as humans. You know, its limits aren't, aren't as hard as, you know, some economic limits or some, something to that degree.
1: Yeah, we. I think we've talked in the past about, like, Marx and Engels kind of, like, ecological thoughts um, or their, yeah, like, their, the ecological undercurrents of their work. It wasn't their primary focus, but it, it makes sense because the, kind of, the kind of feedback loops that are implied by the climate change phenomenon or honestly even just, like, mass the effects even in, independent of that of, like, you know, mass industrial society on on nature have been a at a scale much greater and the like, the feedback loops you've been seeing have been, are also at a larger order of magnitude than you would probably see you know, in the 19th century.
2: Yeah. And I think this is sort of a plea for geographic determinism in historical materialism, you might say. Um, and that's to prepare you for the next chapter where he goes into anthropocentric climate change. right? Like, and how the climate is going to exert a causal force on history, on uh, and the years you know to come.
1: Right. Well, that's the parallel. Uh, I think. I think it's also. I think it's anthropogenic, by the way. Anthro- I,
2: oh, yeah, you're quite right. It is anthropogenic, not anthropocentric.
1: I, I only noticed that because I have it literally written in front of me. Um, no,
2: no, no, that's that's good shit. This is. Uh...
1: Well, yeah, and the so the parallel he's drawing there is how. Yeah, like, the kind of analysis people kind of wanted to do of looking at, like, yeah, shifting climactic patterns as, like, an explanation for the development of, like, human civilization was basically premature. But now it is like an actual, like, uh, live force. And so it's something we're going to have to think about. And so, you know, the chapter, he basically says, like, you know, the Anthropocene may vindicate Kropotkin after all.
2: Yeah, and I guess you know humans are are part of nature. I guess maybe that's jiggling the goalposts a little bit, uh, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> I guess yeah. I guess that counts.
1: I mean, you could just like smoke weed and watch Koyana squat seat You'd probably get the same thing out of it. Out of Koyana, I mean, this, honestly, way ahead of
2: you, way ahead of you.
1: Um, okay, so, um, chapter four, final chapter essay. Who will build the ark? It opens with him um, um, ch- telling us what great taste he has in film. Um, <laughs> he basically compares the arrangement of this um, to a scene from The Lady, of Sha- Lady from Shanghai, a classic uh, Orson Welles film. Um, but he says there's basically two sections to this. Pessimism of the intellect is the first section. Um, and then the second uh, chapter, part of the chapter is Optimism of the Imagination. The first one is basically him uh, taking the black pill. And then the second part of him is him spitting it out. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, I'll tell you what. The pessimism of the intellect one had, had a lot more like gut level <laughs> force for me than the second half. Because, um, you know, basically... He talks a little about you know the Anthropocene and that that whole thing. But kind of the vision, the vi- the vision like Planet of Slums plus. Let me let me see if I can find the quote exactly. The one that was like, "Fuck, hang on." Well, first of all, he talks a little bit about the IPCC's reports and the um, underlying like presumptions that they have, and how like the worst case scenario is probably that they won't even touch in terms of their projections. Is probably the most likely. Um, well, point-
2: based on. Point- Rational action based on rational action, like models, like yeah. of, of economic reason and how people are likely to act. By the way, I can smell an analytical Marxist from like a mile away. Am I right? Like,
1: yeah. Well, he points out also how the US has been juking the stats in terms of like its carbon emission reductions because of deindustrialization. But it's not like those factories just disappeared, like they just went to other countries. No, yeah. they
3: they just sit around and rot and like leave like waste and shit like that. Yeah, and, there's so
2: much here and there's
3: still like high consumption of like goods that are generally not good for the environment either in production and that's high production of it like like red meats which are almost just completely delicious delicious and completely dominant over our diets. It's why we're massive fat asses and like the environment's stuff. Yeah. Not not to fat shame anyone. Being fat is cool. It's just it, it, we'll cut this put, out.
1: put down the put put down the fucking burger, okay? Put down I mean put, okay uh, you can eat a veggie uh, you can just eat a veggie burger bitch. Okay? No. Okay, so here's the quote That here's the thing. Okay, here we go. Uh, the, fundament- the fundamental question is whether rich countries will ever actually mobilize the political will and economic resources to achieve IPCC targets or help poorer countries adapt to the inevitable, already committed quotient of global warming. More vividly, will the electorates of the wealthy nations shed their current bigotry and walled borders to admit refugees from predicted epicenters of drought and desertification, the Maghreb, Mexico, Ethiopia, and Pakistan, Will Americans, the most miserly people when measured by per capita foreign aid, be willing to tax themselves to help relocate the millions likely to be flooded out of densely settled mega delta regions like Bangladesh? And will North American agribusiness, the likely beneficiary of global warming, voluntarily make world food security, not profit taking on the seller's market, its highest priority? Yeah, will they? Is that what's going to happen? Based upon everything that's happened over the last thirty to
2: fifty years, is it I'm, is it I mean any any intelligent any intelligent principle of, of scientific inference. Like really what's happening here, this is ideology, right? You have the best scientific resources imaginable, but the institution is warped to do something that is obviously against truth. Like this is this is the truest expression of ideology like the scientific enterprise is visibly distorted to virtually anybody
3: yeah it's also kind of hilarious where like they they made the goal like stopping stopping it uh the temperature rising from like uh by two essentially like two two degrees and that even if we manage to accomplish the goal it's still incredibly disastrous we said it like way too and like the the actual report itself will really <laughs> acknowledges that i can give you the quote it's also in uh, climate le- leviathan but there's like a quote in there of them just acknowledging yeah this it's not enough even if we if even if we make the goal of like preventing it going up by 2 degrees it's still not enough to avoid, like, horrible, horrific things happening. And later on in this, uh, later on in, uh, the text that we're reading, like, he talks about how the coal industry is, right, ro- the coal, in- coal production is still, like, chugging along, it's still growing, and even a carbon tax, you know, that thing that liberals keep on banging on about, does nothing to stop coal production at all.
2: And coal production arguably kind of increases it because, again, this actually kind of reminds me of the conversation about virtue and markets. When you put a price on something, instead of having like a taboo with like, you know, social sanctions and potentially state sanctions, like if you put a price on something, you give a kind of social affirmation towards it, right? Like you purchase the right to do it now you have the right to do it. Whereas before, the right to do it couldn't exist. Now it does. Sometimes this accelerates (laughs) climate change. This accelerates emissions because you've made something okay if you buy it.
1: Yeah. Um, Let's see. Yeah, it it goes, the IPCC, in effect, has bet the ranch, or rather the planet, on a market-driven evolution towards a post-carbon economy, a transition that requires not only international emissions caps and carbon trading, but also voluntary corporate commitments to technologies that hardly even exist in prototype, such as carbon capture, clean coal, hydrogen, an advanced transit system, and cellulistic biofuels. Uh, as critics have long pointed out, it's, in as its many scenarios, the deployment of non-carbon-emitting technology sorry the deployment of non carbon emitting energy systems exceeds the size of the, the size of the global energy system in 1990 um, although the ipcc never spells it out its mitigation targets necessarily presume the windfall profits from higher fossil fuel prices over the next generation will be efficiently recycled into renewable energy technology and not wasted on mile high skyscrapers asset bubbles and mega payouts to shareholders Overall, the International Energy Agency estimates that it will cost about 45 trillion to have greenhouse gas output by 2050. But without the large portion of automatic progress in energy efficiency, the bridge will never be built, and IPCC goals will be unachievable. In the worst case, the straightforward ex- uh, extrapolation of current energy use, carbon emissions could easily triple by mid century.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah yeah <laughs> so there it's was, like it's like yeah it's like fuck you know what i mean there was, like there there was another passage i can't really remember it that accurately and so i'm a bit hesitant to say it but it was something like we were supposed to i don't know there's a target of cutting emissions by like 50 percent and instead we're at like 200 percent yeah i forget exactly where it is After a while, when you're reading this, you just get the overwhelming sense from a materialist perspective, how fucked we are and that you, you would think before investigating, and I'm sometimes guilty of this because of the political like tenor around environmental debates, like, you know. you see how liberals respond to Trump and then you see how liberals respond to climate change and you can kind of make like equivalences about the tenor of things and have a sort of like abstractified logic from the material reality. Right. But when you really look at the nuts and bolts, like the data and the scientific process behind it, you can see that really we haven't let the data speak enough because the results are so horrible (laughs) like um and yeah to be morally engaged with this is yeah i don't know i don't even really know what to say about it it seems like such a large thing and the world that i I know deal with this
1: yeah i mean the vision i mean what like what's the picture that seems to be suggested here is and again like the way it's distributed um, you know the Western Europe, the United States, parts of Latin America stand to have a windfall, I uh, will get a bump in terms of agricultural production. Everywhere else is getting fucked, right? Um, and that's almost the worst case scenario because you're that will more readily allow the places most responsible for this to insulate themselves from having to p- take responsibility and mitigate any of this. Right. And so the picture that rapidly emerges here um, implicitly is some kind of like basically full blown war between
2: the global north and south, you know, or at, at, that's like the best in the core and periphery within society. So the surplus population within, right. Like these countries, like especially the larger countries, the larger political entities, United States, Russia, China, uh, you know, there will be some level of fragmentation most likely like well that's the it, optimistic scenario
1: Pessimistic no, no. scenario is basically just like democide <laughs> like un- un-
2: unprecedented yeah. human
0: history yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah no that's true none of that yeah no, none of those speculations are in the text but yeah
0: and
1: it's you know it's and it's almost like yeah i mean i know it sounds like again i'm putting, i'm putting my fucking tinfoil hat more and more lately but it, it almost seems like the war on terror was like designed to like prime us for this you know what I mean?
2: That was definitely said at the time by, I, as you know, you know the infowars crowd, and even the concept of surplus population. You know, I first yeah. encountered this in conspiracy theory, and it wasn't until you—it oh, wasn't really until I read the endnotes that I found anything resembling a respectable form of this, right? Like some kind of grand theory of surplus proletarians, mm-hmm. you know, like. It, yeah. it is I regularly encountered this as a kind of crank ass conspiracy theory. Yeah. And, you know, when I, <laughs> if anyone is blessed enough to hear me utter the phrase in a conversation, they normally respond like I'm insane. But, you know, again, I'm, I'm not that, it's not that crazy. Like, of course, the funny thing is that those Alex Jones people think global warming is fake.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. Alex Jones did jump the shark. I mean,
2: well, right. But, but they, they, they're not going to see it coming either.
3: Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's just like the worst fears of like conspiracy theories become real, but at the same time, not real. It's just like, yeah, there is a pedophile lead that controls almost everything. But Trump is not stopping them. And it didn't, fucking no Kennedy's coming back to save us. Um, you know, the government is preparing to get rid of surplus populations and deal with them in a way... way and our privacy is being violated on a constant basis... And there's a false opposition that exists in order to dissuade people from engaging in real revolutionary action. And all, you know, all these things are true. Except, you know, it's not the very, very specific things that, you know, conspiracy theorists are on. Like, fucking Jeffrey Epstein probably did weird rituals, but he wasn't a Satanist. And...
1: Or, like, look at these people freaking out about, like, this, like, face app thing. Like, oh, hey, the, this Russian actors were going to get that. It's like you were the same people who are like, poo pooing, like, Edward Snowden for, like, basically telling us that, like, the government, they, they literally try, like, like, all your shit is being collected. What the fuck are you talking about? You know?
2: This is after they watched Black Mirror. Before Black <laughs> Mirror, they never thought about it before. Yeah. And now. But, they, they got tape on their webcams.
3: Yeah. Jake, Jake, it's the Russians doing it. It's the yeah, Russians. I guess so. so that's yeah, see? The, the, the Russians might do something bad with our faces. They might like deep fake us onto like fucking children, you know. That just might be a very realistic po- possibility if, you know, you just one day you go to Jeffrey Epstein's island and, you know, you have a good time, but then like a video comes out of y- of you fucking a child and you're like well, you know, it could be the Russians. It could be a deep state. <laughs> it could be deep fakes. Yeah, well, you know?
1: and that's what it has to be. Like this Russian shit too, because it's like they're like you know all these people poo pooing like oh the drone strikes poo poo that poo poo uh, we got we do have to control our borders poo poo the deep state the all the surveillance shit and that's like Donald Trump no, now the head of that whole system is Donald fucking Trump and their brains like can't process it so they have to assume like you know.
2: Anyway, <laughs> Well, I mean, the more sophisticated conspiracy theorists see the spectacle for what it is and, you know, have a theory of the deep state, um, which, you know, has some parallels to the sort of minimal Marxist definition of state, but not quite. Again, this is all in terms that conspiracy theorists can understand. And actually, if I was going to kind of critique the second chapter it would be with the notion of structural anti-Semitism and that sort of question of, you know, a political consciousness, especially that that thrives on resentment needs to have, you know, it, 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 in a really simple sense needs to have scapegoats. Uh, but broadly speaking, you know, it needs to pin structural dynamics on corrupt agents as to not indict the system because, you know, the systematic challenge, can't be addressed exclusively from within the system. You need a broader social actor. So that's just like off the table, you know, in in terms of historical consciousness, right? Like that's the level that we're dealing with.
1: All right. So I think, I think we've uh, ground up and snorted the black pill enough for today. Let's move on to section two of chapter four, uh, optimism of the imagination right so uh um, how many y'all like trains <laughs> yeah I like trains and big city living yeah yeah but, you know this I actually does this, this does kind of remind me of like kind of like hippie dippy like leftist paintings i've seen of like future cities or whatever where it's like this integration of like gardening in the city and like shit like kind of like like quasi utopian shit like that um yeah but what's, I mean, the thing is, like, he, so he basically posits like urbanization as the solution to the climate change problem in that, um, and this kind of links up with his earlier analysis of, you know, urbanization as being instrumental to proletarianization. Uh, but to him, like, urbanization is a way to create efficient, like, collective spaces with, with which people can inhabit. And you know, sort of form like material human community while also using kind of economies of scale in in the sort of housing and, and so forth for people in a way that has like a minimal impact on resources and thus helping to like reduce emissions and shit like that. Of course what he's talking about here is a massive like redesign of infrastructure. Although there is a trend towards urbanization generally, so that that is it is heading in that direction in some ways. But uh what do we what do we make of this?
2: Well, marxists have a problem um in the present like a big part of marxist identity is a sort of like self-critical reflection of the socialist movement and attempts to be revolutionary and specifically you know the critique of utopian socialism but we live in a time where there really isn't that much utopian socialism to speak of and you know we have a capitalist realist environment to a degree where even the socialism we imagine is more or less some kind of capitalism, <laughs> like at, at least as far as, you know, market socialism goes. I don't, I, I don't think many people are really advocating for Stalinism, which is probably something other than capitalism, but also enough like capitalism to be undesirable. <laughs> um,
3: You'd be surprised.
1: Well, yeah, it's true. You get to you get your internet tankies,
3: but go on. Yeah and then Honestly, like people not, like the unite people like in Russia and that sort of thing
2: Well there are people like Russia and that sort of thing I guess I'm thinking in terms of uh, you know I, I guess I'm thinking yeah in terms of the national horizon really you know that's that's the that's the playing field right That's a strategic playing field that he's uh telling us to operate on even though it's a global problem um but how do, how do we square that like emphasis on sort of I don't know, building that like class coalition and winning over sort of like class content of nationalism with the problem that we're being presented with like is that a tangent is is that like no no
1: it's true because like this is this kind of so solving this problem requires like an aggressive kind of internationalism you know it's Mm -hmm. it's an international and it requires like even mentions like it requires a kind of solidarity unprecedented in human history He lapses into this kind of like utopian thinking in terms of like how urbanization can resolve these problems. Um, Maybe like the urbanization, you get more to like almost like city states in a weird way than you have like nation. I don't know. Um, But what's unclear is exactly how you kind of get to this point, because it really seems like for any kind of change to this, like like something big has to give. There has to be some kind of breaking point. You know, maybe it's World War Three maybe it's like a global you know best case scenario some kind of global civil class war i mean like or you know series of riots like so, like so there has to be there has to be some big social shakeup and some big shakeup to the global political order in order for there this kind of this kind of like conscious attempt to mitigate um energy consumption and all and so forth to happen and this 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 book seems to have no idea how that's going to happen, but no, neither does anybody else. So you can't get too mad at him about it.
2: Yeah, this is the uh, the space comrades critique from the the meme Posadas, right? Like the, the guy who runs that is an anarchist. It's, it's it's like a you know it's a it's sort of a commentary on the way the left structurally is. We're waiting for something fundamentally alien to break through to change everything, like. Because the trends we see, not very inspiring. <laughs> Let's be real. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, honestly, I feel like that's that's the big that's the big like, energy behind the whole like Storm Area Fifty One meme. You know, like they. I mean, people have said like, "Oh, this is so like Oh, this is distraction from Epstein Gate," or "Oh, this is so grotesque when we should be storming like the ice facilities." But I think there's like a, I think there's an underlying, cunning of reason at work with it. And that it kind of, like, recognizes the hopelessness of <laughs> so much of this stuff of, in, in terms of, like, you know, individual agency and, like, finds, finds like, some kind of solace in, like, this deliberately absurdist attempt to almost, like, recover the the kind of weird utopianism of, like, UFO speculation that, like, they kind of get at it in, like, the X-Files, right? Yeah. How, how, like, Mulder is kind of obsessed with, like, Candy S. Yes, Camelot, but also with aliens, you know, and there's this weird kind of kind of like synergy to that you know um, yeah
2: we, we start crying watching carl sagan what we generally mean is of course intelligent life something resembling our noble selves it is highly probable that there are such intelligent forms of life in other galaxies in the universe
3: and it is even more probable that many of these forms are vastly
0: more intelligent than we i uh I think there's no question but that we live in an inhabited universe that has life all over it by finding out what the other planets are like by finding out whether there are civilizations on planets of other stars we reestablish
2: a meaningful context for ourselves
0: i don't think we should wait
2: until the encounter occurs but that we should do
3: all in our power to prepare ourselves for it. I can conceive of no nightmare as terrifying as establishing such communication with the so-called superior or if you wish advanced technology in outer space.
1: Yeah. So, so I, like, I, I, I kind of see it like in that particular, in that particular.
2: I don't know how, I, how we got in that tangent, but like, um, anyway. Oh, it's because we're, you know, trying to lay down a, a, something of a little critical bit. And it's almost unfair because he's like, yeah, I know these things don't really add up together. And this is a tension that you see in a lot of good thinkers, right? Because you end up with a a theory that is so totalizing and dire. But, you know, the evidence, the burden of proof, you know, is, is, is exquisite, <laughs> like, You couldn't be more sure from our contemporary standards of knowledge that this is happening. And so, like, kind of like at the end of Wind Waker, uh, everything's flooded. And someone says, this is the only world we could have left to you. You look at the you look at the boomers. And you ask yourself, "Fucking seriously?" <laughs> like, <laughs> well, you know it's funny. Feel I feel like
1: back. I feel like we are like destined to be the most desp- actually be the most despised generation in history. Cause like the when boomer don't do anything about it either. <laughs> well, no, the boomers look at us and they go, Oh man, like you can't get your lives together. Like, wh- like you're just you're giving us nothing but excuses. And then we're going to be like sitting like in the, in the rubble, like the future generations. Like, well, why don't you stop this from happening? It's like, well, you see and everything we say will just sound like nothing but excuses. You know? Yeah. So, like, I we'll, mean, we'll just, we'll just get it off from both ends.
2: Well, yeah, the truth is that, you know, like if, if this happens and we didn't stop it is because we couldn't, but for different reasons, we couldn't because, you know, the same situation that, you know, made the environment the way it is made us not capable of executing. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. like in a, in a, in a grand kind of, you know, synergistic pro-social, you know, pro-environmental way. <laughs> like that wasn't the humanity that was produced by the society.
1: But you could see, but you could see how a people like who are who if if it, if it really goes to hell in a handbasket, the people who are born into that world and have to struggle through it. How our thing of like, well, you know, like I didn't want to talk to my neighbors and like, you know, I just you know like we had Netflix. And I like was, was just doing self care the
3: entire time, actually. Um, you know. I had to keep up my Funko Pop
2: collection, and like I knew this was gonna go to Funko Pops. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I only know what Funko Pops are because of like, this metaphor. Like,
3: I mean, I did join the DSA a bit, you know. It's, it's... Yeah,
2: yeah, I, I,
1: vote, I voted. I voted for a uh, old socialist Jew who kept repeatedly getting fucked over by the political party he ran in. Um, but uh, you know. Yeah, I voted for I voted for a guy who uh, named Barack Obama. Who, you know, he seemed like a cool guy. Um, what would he do? Um, sometimes I uh, had Jay Z at the White House.
3: Sometimes I would go onto this site called ChatterBait and respect women. Um, I don't. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, anyway, a, I just want to read Patreon putting out some uh, putting out some media oh okay I, want, I just
1: want to read the last thing he says here right he goes like the few, the refusal to act decisively on behalf of all humanity would quote would be quote a moral failure on a scale unparalleled in history and quote if this sounds like a sentimental call to the barricades an echo from the classrooms streets and studios of 40 years ago and so be it on the basis of the evidence before us taking a realist view of the human prospect like seeing medusa's head would simply turn us into stone <laughs>
3: And that's a great way to end it. On Just, good night, folks. We. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, if we're too cynical to do anything, this is going to be unfathomably bad. Yeah. Now, how to overcome this system that seems to rationally generate quite a bit of cynicism? It's a question no one has the answer to. But we all know that when we see an opportunity, we have to lunge for it.
1: Well, I. I, think that's I I'm gonna I'm gonna put this microphone down and I'm gonna get a bucket of paint. I'm just gonna go up to my roof and just write in Chinese characters: Ji Ping, liberate me," and hope <laughs> for the best.
2: Yeah. Should get maybe 35 in the Patreon. Yeah. Yeah, that'll help.
3: I'm am <laughs> just, just waiting for for the Chinese proletariat to rise up and bring back Mao. You know, that's that's
2: something that will happen. Yeah. Uh, more will be revealed this isn't the end um at some point people will kick back i have no idea what that's going to look like it might be in some ways more terrible than now and people will look back on these days as as an age of relative peace oh it
0: it definitely is that
2: yeah oh yeah so yeah smoke, smoke them if you got them people so you know i don't know what what do you what do you do as an adult in a society like that that th- things are going so haywire and collective responsibility seems impossible to tie this back to that sort of moral methodological individualism that sort of political um uh, You know the quote structural anti-semitism right like not comprehending the emergent tendencies thinking of everything thing in terms of corrupt agents um as a way of like sort of short-circuiting being able to solve systemic problems and turning them into friend enemy you know schmidian like you know wars essentially that I i think you do you do you do what people have always
1: done you do what you can you know, um, you know. I think a good example would be somebody. You know, like uh, I mean, they're, they're, you look at the history of militants and the way they've operated. You start where you're at. You know, like right. for some for some people, you maybe you're like Noam Chomsky. You get, you get tenure somewhere, and you you write articles and you go to you know, you go to places and support activist causes and you know, do what you, can, you know what I'm saying? Like
2: right. Or so some people like Ted Kaczynski send letter bombs to Noam Chomsky.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, you may, maybe, you know, if you work someplace shitty, you try and organize your workplace. You know, maybe if you're in, you, you, you know, you live in a neighborhood where there's people who, you know, are potentially vulnerable to, you know, the deportate group, like growing deportation regime, you try and do something to help those. You know what I'm saying? Like you, okay. you look, you look for what you can do where you can, you know, you try. So some of us try and understand these problems better. You know, we have these conversations and try and basically, because we really just need more people to understand this stuff. You know, yeah.
2: I, I mean, now that, I don't, yeah. I don't know why I'm not cynical towards conversation. We all know the reasons to be cynical towards conversation, but I'm not totally cynical. I I still think there's like good, kind of. I don't know. There are more people that need to like. I don't know if it's even more people that need to grapple with these things. It's more along the lines of like. The people that are grappling with these things independently, and individually, like I mean, are no part that, of some kind of s- structural solution at some point.
1: Not everybody's drank the Kool-Aid, you know, not everybody's on this right. shit. Not everybody is on the Trump shit. And there's even people who are on that shit that don't take it seriously. It's just that's kind of what's going on. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Th- so, no, totally. I mean, we, we like to f- we like we like to focus on, like, again, the people who are in the cults because, you know, there's a certain kind of morbid fascination there. But that's not I don't think that's I actually don't think that's most people. So no,
2: it's not it's explicitly not it's demographically absolutely not the case that that's what most people are like, like they might have kind of similar stuff going in and, you know, in all kinds of directions. But it's not quite the same kind of I don't know
1: it's and or look at the, look at the big beards, you know, like they made their big push in 1848 didn't work out. You know, so they, they went to work, you know, on what they were good at, which is, you know, writing theory and, like, studying this stuff, you know. In fact. Yeah. And then, you know, they, they eventually, they kind of got involved in the First International. that didn't go so great. You know, they, they helped. After the Paris commune collapse. they helped, like, Marx and Engels, like, helped to house, like, refugees from that particular struggle in London. You know what I mean? Like, they just, they did what they could with, You know, in this historical period that they existed within, you know, that's all you can do.
2: Yeah, you have to accept the limits of your agency, and you also, I guess, need to engage in some kind of, I don't know, critique of the things that you can do, which is difficult. That part's hard because because there's such, in a way, there's a lot of things you can do, but in, in the grand scheme, it feels like. There's a very limited menu of things you can do. Being critical about it can often make one feel like that there's no point in doing anything. And you have to like kind of temper yourself and figure out like what level of commitment you're capable of and like, I don't know, how you can meaningfully participate in these things. Like it's important not to suspend that critical faculty entirely. You have to engage it, you need to know how to engage it. Something I haven't quite mastered being as that, you know, My main political activity has been, you know, doing a podcast.
1: Yeah, and you know what? If you want to go full Frank Castle, and (laughs) you know, and sometimes, sometimes a man does have to stand up to the bullshit and get rid of the refuse and the filth. You know,
3: and
1: and that and that's good. I support that 100. percent Are we bringing this full circle? We're not on (laughs) Apple
2: Podcasts. Ever going to be on Apple Podcasts ever again?
0: That's it for this week. Sorry about the uh, about the inconsistency lately in terms of getting the episodes out. I'm trying to develop a new workflow for editing it that doesn't uh, isn't quite so labor intensive, and then hopefully we can keep a more consistent pace and schedule. If you want to support the show, you can uh, check out our Patreon. Um, You can send us some money on PayPal, swampsidechats at gmail.com. You can also email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. Or uh, contact us on any one of our uh, various social media outlets. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.